Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in patient safety and quality improvement. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's wellbeing campaign, which is especially important for healthcare professionals at this time and during COVID-19. Today, we're delighted to have on the podcast two clinicians who are passionate about self-care and the importance of it. Welcome both. Can you introduce yourselves, please? Yeah, so hi, I'm Susanna Pecci. Um, I'm a GP and a clinical facilitator and occasional lecturer with over 20 years clinical experience. My name is Raina Popat. I'm a practicing GP in London and um, in my spare time, I'm also a, a certified coach, a writer and a mum of two. Lovely, thank you. Most recently, we're a founding member of a collective called First You. Brilliant. And First You is what we wanted to speak to you both today. I know you're part of a wider team of women who've set this up, but you've kindly both agreed to talk to us. So I wonder if um, you could explain just briefly what First You is and who it's for. Yeah, so um, First You is a group of um, women healthcare workers and clinicians who um, found each other through an organisation I did my coaching certification with. Um, It's a grassroots leadership and training organisation called One of Many. And within that community, we're a group who, despite coming from diverse backgrounds, so primary and secondary care, allied health professionals, um, also patients, with sort of decades of collective experience training and working and receiving care from the NHS, we'd all become advocates of this shared vision, really, which is that of a, a training and professional culture in which healthcare workers and um, professionals are actively supported to fit their own oxygen masks first. So we believe that caring for those who care for us Um, is not a nice to do or a a luxury but a necessity really for the healthcare system Um, and we've developed put together this website that's sort of a hub of well-being resources Um, and there's a spectrum of tools there really Um, and everything from supporting a self-care lifestyle to sources of inspiration and distraction but also things for calming stress and anxiety or for weathering the storm dealing with grief Um, and also being mindful of those people who might be more in distress or at crisis point as well. Susanna I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you became interested in this and you know have you had any personal experiences that particularly um, have driven that? Yeah absolutely so I think it's something that we've heard for for quite a while about um, the high rates of mental illness within healthcare professionals and terms like burnout, anxiety, depression, uh, and also suicide, that that they're really high. And we're also aware of our own experiences within the training culture that that can be really uh, stressful and difficult. There's constant pressure to climb that ladder and do the next exam. Um, And that we're working in an environment where where most of us are feeling overworked, overstretched, undervalued with unrealistic targets that we're supposed to meet. We're aware of endemic bullying within the NHS and we're working within a culture where we're kind of, we're expected to prioritise everyone else's needs over our own. But it wasn't until I became one of those statistics that I really realised actually what this means. So in 2016, I was diagnosed with PTSD as a result of my own experiences within working as a healthcare professional within the NHS. Um, 
it was actually a January morning. I was found, found myself curled up in the corner of a consulting room, sobbing, completely unable to function. And just to add that I was the doctor in that consulting room. There weren't any patients at the time, but my colleagues came in and sent me home. I thought just for a week or two, but I actually couldn't work for almost six months. And it was absolutely terrifying. And the impact on me personally and on my family, you can imagine, has been huge. Um, But as I went through the process of recovery and healing with that, I started to read more and more and realized just how endemic this is. This is a huge problem. And it led me to studying a master's in psychological trauma. And doing that was almost like putting glasses on, like suddenly seeing things clearly and seeing um, an understanding and reading about um, PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, and secondary traumatic stress and vicarious trauma and what that means and the implication that that has for healthcare professionals in a way that I just had absolutely no awareness of whatsoever. Um, on my course, there was a, a paramedic and a, um, and a senior nurse and the two of us, we, we'd never been in an environment where self-care had been spoken about. And we were shocked that at the, at the start of the three years, the very first induction weekend, the lecturers talked to us about the importance of self-care in relation to what we would be studying. And it just seemed like such a, a revolutionary, radical idea. And yet all of the, the other colleagues, the, the talking therapists who were studying with us, just were kind of quite confused and wondering, well, do you, do you not, I mean, considering where you work and um, so I'm, I'm a GP work in the emergency department, you know, do you not? Do you not talk about this? Do you not have supervision? Do you not have debriefing? And it's it it just has really fired up this passion in me of wanting to share this and talk about it. So I now I now teach sometimes around this and do lectures around this. And then um, I also was part of this organisation that Raina talked about of one of many. And then meeting other female healthcare professionals from different backgrounds, and realizing through different journeys and different experiences. Are, are we kind of have come to the same conclusion of just how awful this was, but that, that we simply needed to do something about it. Because it's not just the cost to the individual, which is obviously catastrophic, but it's the cost to the patient. Like this has a huge impact on patient care and patient safety. And it also has a cost to the economy. The financial burden of this is huge and it's just not talked about. Susanna, you talked a lot there about self-care and Rainy, you spoke about that as well when you talked us through what First You was all about. And it made me reflect a bit on when Kat and I started looking at doing work around doctors' wellbeing for the BMJ. We really thought a lot about how we balanced the importance of the individual looking after themselves, but also the importance of recognising that some of these problems are created by a system and a culture that an individual can't change. And I wonder if that's something that also came up for you and your colleagues when you were working on First You and how you've kind of thought about those problems? Mm. I think that's, it's a really good point, Abby, because I think that my my journey towards the work that we do now began from day one of medical school, possibly even before. Um, and I imagine much like all of our uh, colleagues at medical school, we came in as intellectually curious, gritty, 
empathetic young things, you know, whose whose teachers had every confidence that we'd succeed at whatever we turned our hands to. Um, and, you know, others amongst my peer group maybe see it differently. Maybe they sort of fell into it or it was the obvious choice for bright students. But I wasn't one of those. Um, I came in to undergraduate medicine and this was a conscious choice. Um, and I came with my cup full. So it wasn't, resilience wasn't a question for me back then. You know, I, I absolutely came into medicine with my cup full. But of course, as medics, we enter, we enter our profession so young at, and at such a completely different stage in our lives. Um, and it is, it, we grow into our adult selves um, and into what we will become for the rest of our careers within medicine. And um, so I think there really needs to be a recognition that this is not just about individual responsibility or, you know, having tools or all the resources available to us as individuals, that this is something that we, we do in one's own time or that is a, it is, it is a luxury. Um, but we really now need to start shifting the responsibility from individual resilience to a collective form of self-care. So what do we do within our teams? How can we make it easier um, how do we incorporate self-care into our working day as a, a barometer for which we measure the strength of our teams? And how does it shift from this sort of covert thing that people are expected to do for themselves by attending a course or um, having some resilience training to something more overt? Things that we see, artifacts in our workplace, the things that we say, the conversations that we're having within our workplaces how, how is it explicit uh, that we're showing that we value people um, and, you know, value caring for ourselves? Susanna, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add on that point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, there seems to be, when we talk about resilience for a lot of healthcare professionals, it's quite, feels like quite a, um, almost like a toxic word it's it's this pressure of like yet another thing that we're supposed to do and it's almost kind of like a finger pointing well you're not resilient enough and that's your fault and you need to do something about it and yes absolutely we all need to take individual responsibility for ourselves but if we're working within a culture and an organization and a system that doesn't really permit that um and that actively um tries to beat it almost out of you to be like that that makes it very difficult so it makes it then feel that to um to be somebody who practices self-care advocates self-care that you're, you're quite a radical which it shouldn't be this should just be normal so yes there is something about individuals taking some responsibility but it definitely needs to be something that happens systemic. So at an, an organizational level within the team, within the department, um, you know, within the, within the surgery, within the practice, um, within the trust, within the CCGs, it, it just, it needs to be throughout training. It needs to be at so many different levels. And, and like Raina said, it needs to be something that's really visible, really overt, that everyone can see it's there. And it just becomes normalized. This is just what we do. It's not just an optional add-on. It's not something that you can go to that's put on, um, that's often on a day when you're not working or the department's so short-staffed that considering to release staff to go to it, everyone knows is a joke and no one's gonna get to it but it's okay. It's been put on. So it's, it's kind of there. It, it needs to be much more than this, this tick box thing. And, and 
there needs to be this recognition at a, at a senior organizational level that they have responsibility to their staff and that actually if they did this properly, that would have a huge impact on patient care, on staff turnover, um, on staff leaving leaving the profession, and and in turn money. I mean, with big organisations, it all come, always comes down to money. But the economic impact of this is you know is huge. Um, so yeah, the organisational responsibility is is a huge part of this. I'm really interested in kind of. Um the journey to how we get to this vision that you painted where self-care becomes this explicit just what we do around here integral part of of healthcare culture which is a vision that I would love to see happen um and you you've talked about some of the sort of um barriers to that but it'd be interesting to talk about kind of the enablers and obviously you know starting with what you've done with first you and providing this hub and um making those resources available is, is a fantastic kickoff um but we've heard recently that there are some trainees who are being asked to record a certain number of hours of well-being activities in their portfolio um and i'd be interested to hear your response to that <laughs> proposal <laughs> uh. Maybe with your uh, appraiser hat on there, Suzanne. Yeah, I'll, I'll say I'm, not a, I'm not an appraiser, but yeah, yeah, I, I do oh, teach undergraduate medicine and I'm a, I'm a personal tutor. Um, it, it's just, it's a bit disheartening really, isn't it? It's, um, it's not really getting it. I mean, if, if that's what we're doing, then we're just not getting it. I mean, it is a bit like in appraisals, it's understanding the value of reflection. You know, reflection is a great tool, but only if it's used properly. So it's asking people to record well-being again is putting the onus on the individual it's not making it something systemic um so something that that we've we've tried to change a bit at the medical school where i'm where i'm teaching um is to try and look at bringing in teaching around well-being right into first year teaching and having um uh, sessions in the second year around so it's a whole whole morning sessions where we're looking at doctors having emotions the fact that you're a human being what do you do with those emotions what do you do with the baggage that all of us bring to us because we're human to medical training how do you then deal with the things that happen and just have the conversation so it's not necessarily about having all the solutions but it's about the fact normalizing the fact that you can talk about it and I think it's it's the fact that it's it's a compulsory part of the timetable that is that takes up half a day. Um, yes, we could do lots more, and I hope that that does evolve and we do lots more. But it's giving a signal to the students that this is important, and if we do something every year, and, and you know, and ideally that this would continue into training, foundation training, it's it's something that needs to be continuous and ongoing rather than just that one-off but yeah getting people just to record something is is quite shocking really it's also the appreciation isn't it Susanna in medical school that we we learn unwritten rules and behaviors and norms and alongside the 15 to 30,000 words that we terminology that we learn as medical students we're also learning a lot of other 
messages, aren't we? That we work late into the night and in our weekends that we prioritise our studies at the expense of the things that we were before we entered medical school, um, that we're discouraged to take on part-time jobs and we work long hours with no place to rest or sleep or even time to go to the bathroom. Um, and actually that says that we, if we don't pass our academic exams in the first year or two, we're turfed out. Um, and there's a, a heck of a lot of bullying and undermining going on. And actually I never, I don't know about you, but I never had okay. any safe spaces in medical school to have conversations about these issues. They just carried on through my training and into my professional life being unspoken about and it shaped me as a clinician and I think had we had the provisions for that much earlier on well well before appraisal I think you know um, my perspectives and, and my adult personality may not have taken so much unlearning and so much unraveling later absolutely. on absolutely and there's research to back it up that we can see how students their attitudes at the start of um, training um, and the end of training is very different just within medical school. So, so not even when they, you know, this is before they've qualified, but it's, it's absolutely like Raina said, it's, it's, you're learning from your peers. So as soon as you're going then onto the wards and, and are much more immersed into clinical training, you're, you're surrounded by people who, who probably have pretty burnt out themselves and have become pretty jaded. And there's this mentality, I think that's, that's, quite prevalent within healthcare professionals of just that resignation that just that's just how it is but almost like a victim mentality of just well there's nothing I can do it's it's just it's such a huge entity that we're working in I can't change it rather than seeing that each of us if we can start to do something and speak up about it and encourage others to speak up about it and to even even things like going for a walk outside for 10 minutes in a break um, can, can have a huge difference on your well-being. And if you can do that as a senior leader within the healthcare profession, that can impact all of the people around you and give permission for those to do it. And if they all start doing it, then that leads to other colleagues seeing it. And then it leads to other people within the organization seeing that, yeah, okay, actually maybe this is something we need to do. So it's, it's really small steps can make a difference, but yeah, it, it's something that, that just really needs to change. It's interesting you say that because I was going to ask you about how role modeling could make a difference kind of in this space. We were lucky enough to have um, Ashling Lillis, who's a consultant in acute medicine, join us on a different podcast recording. And she spoke to us about what she described as her breakdown and then how speaking to that, to colleagues, speaking to about it with colleagues after she returned to work, what effect that had on them and kind of their surprise at her speaking about it, but also the way that it gave other colleagues permission to talk to her about their own mental health difficulties because she'd shared her struggles, which I thought was really interesting. But going back to what we talked about before, this kind of the individual versus system, it seems that although we would like to see the system changed ideally, there are small things as an individual, especially as a senior leader, you can do. Maybe it's just, you know, using some of the tools that you share on First You and also telling your colleagues about it, which can actually make a difference. This year, I had the privilege of doing a DARSI fellowship, which was about systems leadership. And the thing that resonates with me about what you just said is, and, and what I learned in the DARSI fellowship is we are the system. We, we are a mirror of the system 
as individuals. And so every individual action or omission impacts the system. And it, it's, not a, it's not a thing up there or a thing out there. It is a living organism that evolves depending on the dynamics of the people inside it. So if we are making that small move to protect our breaks or to go out for that walk or to have that conversation with a colleague, not expect them to come to us, but actively reach out to that colleague and ask, how are you really? Um, the ripple effects that are then had that that person might go and ask somebody else or that medical students observe it and remember that when they become um, senior leaders themselves, that's how the system changes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that I've been, um, I've talked much more since since I've become unwell and, and recovered. I've talked much more openly about mental health um, and my own experiences to colleagues and in teaching. And it's amazing by talking about it, then people are much more likely to come to me and tell me about their struggles. And uh, and then it, it is just inviting that conversation that, that it just, gives more permission to talk about it I think that there's such a culture within within healthcare of just not not talking about things that might be difficult and in particular there's a still a huge stigma around mental health and there's a fear of saying if you're struggling or you're finding things difficult that that means you're a bad doctor or a bad clinician and that you failed and therefore you're not going to get good reference you're not going to be able to get further jobs so it's just best if you just keep quiet. And that's clearly so detrimental to the individual and to patient care. So it's trying to just break down some of those taboos and talk about this more openly and give people some little tips and tools that they can do to help. And absolutely, like Raina said, we are, we're individuals, but together we create the system. So it's trying to empower um, when I'm talking to colleagues at work or when I'm talking to medical students or when I'm doing lectures on psychological trauma to postgrad um, uh, doctors, it's, it's trying to get them to see, yes, they're individuals, but together, if you're all working in the same, you know, in the same area or the same trust, that you can all collectively say, no, we need to protect this and we need to do this and we want to do this. And just by doing the action, by taking the action, other people can see that and it has then a ripple effect that can start to inspire and give permission to others around you. And collectively that then can start to lead to bigger change. I guess it's just a call to people's leadership as well. I think people don't appreciate that they are leaders, whatever position they hold in an organization, whether they be tops, middles or bottoms. And, it, you know, at the bottom, there's a sense sometimes of collective hopelessness that nothing will ever change. And the middle grades are caught between um, the pressures of what is being put on them by the tops and also the responsibility they carry for the, for the bottoms. And actually just giving those people a recognition of their power in the system to be able to influence the top level and also role model for the bottom level uh, is invaluable really. So just a call to people to recognize your leadership in the realm of self-care. What is it that you can role model? Or what is it that you can influence within your circle of influence that will change the system over time? Thank you. I think that's really powerful. And I think we know the kind of ability of grassroots organisations to, to make and create change compared to sort of top down restructures is incredibly powerful. And it's, it's great to hear that emphasis. I've got another question for you in a minute. But first of all, a message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, 
We know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one -one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our well-being programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. You're talking about giving people these tools and these tips to start on this journey of self-care and uh, activities that they can then role model for others and create this ripple effect. And that's obviously what you've created in this hub. Can you talk a bit more about um, how you selected the, the tools and resources to put on there and, and what your kind of vision for the hub is going forward? I think we, we looked at... Um, things that we found helpful ourselves so um a, s some of the material we created ourselves because it was out of a need of things that we we wanted um and we we wanted a need for and things that we found helpful so um things like breathing exercises understanding more about sleep um uh, uh tips on managing anxiety and stress uh, in the workplace um information about grief um and and then we were we were putting out calls to people that we knew to try and see what materials we had um, and trying to, to um, then, you know, people who were who essentially were donating free resources. Um, it was, so it kind of evolved organically that way. Rain, I don't know if you want to. I think there was a recognition as well that people were coming home exhausted yeah. from from their shifts. And we didn't want something. The last thing you want to do sometimes when you're exhausted after a shift is to visit a website with with all things self-care. So we're really mindful of the fact that we as clinicians want something that is practical and that um, is respectful that we have chosen to use our time to visit the hub and therefore you know it's not something that is lengthy or difficult to do something that is practical and can fit into your day so my hope my my personal hope i'm not speaking for the whole committee is that the, our, our next evolution will be to make it even more you know user friendly um something that could be very easily accessed um, and we hope to evolve by people's feedback. So actually listening to what our users are um, enjoying. So we're looking at the um, statistics on the site as well, seeing you know, what our hit rates are for various different resources, what people are visiting time and time again. And we have a feedback button on the website where people can say, we want more of this or less of this, or I found this unhelpful. And we are really listening. So um, if people do visit the website, the, the feedback is essential really, because it, it needs to reflect um, the usership. So, Rainey, you you mentioned that you've looked at what's been most popular on the the site. I wondered if you could talk us through what what you found that people have been using most. Yeah, so it's it's been quite a surprise, really, um, or maybe not a surprise. In fact, that a lot of the 
most popular resources are things that we've either developed ourselves because we found that there's been a need for them or um, very short, sharp, practical things like um, an audio meditation to celebrate the end of a shift, a really difficult shift and what, what one has gone through. Um, some sleep resources and experiential resources. Um, so videos um, shared by Susanna about things she'd wish she'd known before she'd entered medical school um, in terms of the, the from, from the perspective of trauma. Um, so these aren't necessarily the things that our traditional organizations offer um, in terms of resilience management courses. Um, they are not necessarily things that are uh, born out of traditional evidence, but very much um, lived experience. And um, so we're hoping to develop more of those kind of resources moving forward. Looking at your website, you have a really nice range of different tools that people can use. And it's nice to see that although obviously your, your membership, you're mostly clinicians, there are things on there that maybe, I don't know, might not be so strictly evidence-based if you were being sort of very precise about it, you know, things like yoga, but actually I could see would be really helpful for people. And you're giving them the option to say, I want to do this because it's nice. It might not, there might not be a scientific study that says it's going to, I don't know, improve my well-being, but I still want to do it. So I think that's really nice. And mm. I can see doctors that I know using it. Absolutely. I think we we get sometimes too snooty about the choice of resources that we use we identify so much with being doctors that we forget that we're humans first and we need to bring the whole of us, um, particularly in the aspect of self-care. We are humans first. So moving our bodies, um, feeling good, breathing, getting out into nature, are human instincts. And those are the things that can sometimes really, they're the things when I needed the self-care myself, I found outside of medical help. So I went to go and see my doctor when I suffered from postnatal depression, but it wasn't there that I found the answers. It was um, in community and with friends and old, old wisdom, I guess, old sources of knowledge that provided the most benefit. And we wanted to be a little bit more out of the box with our offerings. I'd also like to add that I, I would have had the same kind of reaction, to be honest, a few years ago. Um, but then and when I was studying, doing this this, this um, academic study of, of psychological trauma, and it, so many of the resources actually are evidence based, but they're not. Um, there's still a you know it's where which paper sorry which paper which journal are they published in that's the thing and then because of that where's the readership and who actually is reading this, but there is a huge body of evidence that things like breath work so breathing exercises and yoga and moving the body and releasing emotions and being in nature um looking at what we're eating how it affects our gut microbiome how that impacts on our sleep and our mood there's so much evidence now showing that we can actually change our neural pathways so we can change our brains by doing these little steps and that in turn can help our our mood our stress levels and our overall well-being and that for me was just such an amazing thing to to realize that there's so much evidence but with my kind of rigid doctor thinking i just not seen it um and it's about for me bringing that more into the into the kind of medical sphere and kind of dragging it in and getting people to see it 
um, because we're, we're kind of doing ourselves a disservice by not using it and, and kind of by ignoring it. Absolutely, Susanna, that I, I've been sort of really gagging to make that point, I think, until after Abby mentioned it. I think, you know, there's the sort of high, rigid kind of hierarchy of evidence that, that we can have and, and say, you know, evidence that's interdisciplinary or comes from, a, you know, another field we might just not be aware of or completely ignore. And then the other thing is, I think, you know, this sort of um, qualitative evidence, you know, this, you've said, you know, these are all things that we found useful and that kind of sharing of personal experiences and, um, and tips and tricks you know I think so many people are getting so much more from communities on Facebook which we know there are many communities on Facebook for example which exist to support doctors well-being um, or just to support healthcare professionals de- generally um, and we know that people are finding them a huge resource rather than necessarily um, the nice guidelines for managing generalised anxiety <laughs> disorder for example. Um, I'd invite people to suspend their should do's and their cynicism and just give it a try. Um, and, you know, who knows, you might actually find that you'll be um, advocating dancing in your workplace the next time you go into work. Thank you. You've all answered what I tried to get to, but didn't explain very well. And I'm very happy to be wrong about the evidence. So that's really nice to hear. So Susanna, we've obviously been through a really hard time for healthcare professionals and are still in a very difficult part of the pandemic how do you think it's going to affect doctors well-being and is there anything we can do in addition to support people going forward yeah it's a really good point I think it's recognizing that um, the difficulties with mental health and um, the impact of working within healthcare that the difficulties have been around for a long time so it's recognizing that we are working with grief and loss and hardship and um, breaking bad news um, and seeing people suffering and dying. That is our job. That's what we do. And that's what we do all the time. So to expect that we're doing this day in, day out and not be affected by this is actually quite ridiculous. But it doesn't mean that just because we're seeing things that are really difficult, that we are necessarily going to be adversely affected. So if we can take time to reflect, to have a moment to just talk about a difficult situation with a colleague, to debrief, to have space to go for a stomp after work um, or to um, uh, have some quality time with friends, um, to go to the gym and, and do some exercise, to be able to um, go to a concert and dance all night. To be able to do those things really has a massive impact on, on, on your well-being. The problem that we've got working in the pandemic is that lots of the risk factors that, can, that are there that can increase the risk of people developing um, things like secondary traumatic stress, Um, or PTSD. So secondary traumatic stress is where you're not actually the person going through the trauma, but you're witnessing it and it's a cumulative effect. And and there's always a spectrum and a range of this, of course. But the factors that increase the risk of this are um, constant change, a loss of control, um, lack of contact, lack of a sense of community. And that's all the things that we've been having in the pandemic. So people have been redeployed to different areas that they're not used to. 
um, like Raina alluded to earlier, we're constantly having changes about how we're working, what we're working, from what PPE we're wearing, how we do even basic things like resuscitation, you know, how we're doing that, where we're doing it. Um, the way we're managing patients is, is so constantly changing. We're not working necessarily in the teams that we're used to working in. Uh, there's that feeling of loss of control and uncertainty because we're, we're in another wave and then another wave. And um, then the things that can help us to kind of decompress when we leave work, we're not able to have that contact with loved ones necessarily or with friends. You can't go out. You can't socialize in that way, having that contact, um, experience things like going to the gym or going to a concert or going to the theater. All of that's missing. So all of those factors on together, putting that in the context of what we've already talked about, a culture where you're not supposed to talk about struggling, you're not supposed to talk about things that are difficult and everyone else's needs are way more important than yours is, is really a recipe for disaster. And that's why being really focused on prioritizing self-care and the debriefing spaces as an individual, but absolutely within teams and organizations is such a priority. Otherwise, I think we are going to see more and more and more problems in the coming months and years. Thank you, Susanna. I don't think I've heard anyone explain it so clearly. And it makes perfect sense, you know, that as on top of working in a very stressful environment, you don't have access to those things that you otherwise would have had to help you de-stress. But it, it now that you've put it like that it's perfectly obvious but I don't think I'd coherently thought about it like that before so it's really interesting and I just wanted to ask um it was really lovely to hear you mention the fact that just because you're going through this doesn't mean you have to end up in this situation where you have post-traumatic stress or secondary you know trauma um and we heard Neil Greenberg talking about on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about post-traumatic growth and how you know actually going through these experiences if dealt with in the right way and given the appropriate space and support and opportunities for self-care people can grow as a result of them um do you think that the pandemic has enabled us to have more open conversations about the importance of mental health and, and well-being or is that just isolated to a few a few pockets of high performing care organizations I, I certainly think it's opened up the conversation um i mean the the research um project i did for my dissertation was looking at how we're talking about psychological trauma and secondary traumatic stress within general practice or not as actually the result was um but it's been over the last kind of 12 months we're seeing in the medical media and in the mainstream media terms like moral injury and ptsd and um, and the impact of work and that emotional labor, that emotional work burden. Um, we're, we're, having, we're seeing that much more. And so that is a positive that's really come out of this pandemic. What's really important though, is that that's just not a blip in the news, that we actually take that information mm. and we learn from it and that we then change the way that we're, we're managing and working and start to change the culture so that it does have a lasting positive impact. I think what we're seeing right now is a time of disruption, massive disruption and change. And um, that doesn't always have to be viewed negatively. So this disruption is a time, is a shakeup and a wake up call um, where a lot of us have started to appreciate um, just what we've been doing 
for the last few decades. And um, it's a time to reassess our values, I think, as a medical community and to make sure that if those values were there to start off with, that we're living to them too. So a conversation now that, you know, I implore that please don't forget this when things lift and let us take a moment to reflect what good has come from the pandemic in the ways that we're working and being vulnerable and having these conversations and let it not be just a, a moment in time that we rapidly forget. It was the worst thing that we could do is just go back to the way that we were. Um, I think someone once said that, you know, experience, you can, you can have 36 years of experience, but it could be one year of experience repeated 36 times over, or it could be real experience. So growth from, from what we've encountered this year. Well, I thought that was a really interesting discussion with um, Susanna and Raina Kat. I particularly was interested in Raina's point on, you know, the fact that the system is made up of all of us. And although sometimes it can feel like we can't change the system, it's also worth bearing in mind that we are the system. Absolutely. Um, and if I could geek out and quality improvement modes about all the kind of organisational change literature about, you know, seeing organisations as, as just being made up of people. But it is important because I think, as you said, it really leads to this um, sense of empowerment and being able to make change and, and to speak out. And I think that's been a real theme for us recently on the podcast, how the actions of individuals have a big impact on the people around them. And I think, you know, that's the kind of thing we want to be encouraging people to, to think about and reflect on. I was also really glad that you all corrected my assumption that maybe there isn't much evidence for some of these more kind of touchy-feely well-being um, interventions. And it's great to hear that actually there is, you know, science out there to back these things up. Absolutely. And so often these things are seen as the soft stuff. Um, but just because it's the soft stuff doesn't mean that there's not a great deal of evidence behind it. Um, and there's lots of um, movements like, you know, the Joy in Work movement from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement um, and the sort of kindness uh, work going on in the NHS um, that I think are so important for bringing this soft stuff to the forefront and, and thinking about how um, self-care and the, you know, all the stuff Michael West has been talking to us about, the compassionate leadership and having this real culture of kindness to yourself and others um, is so important and is really going to benefit um, frontline staff, especially under these incredibly difficult circumstances. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you so much to Raina and Susanna for joining us on the podcast. And you can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes. Until next time, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. Bye.